Matthew 24, <laughs> 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains." Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yes, yes, I'm that awkward guy from the video. Uh, great to be here. Um, I almost wore that exact same outfit because I wear it all the time. And my wife said, uh, you've worn that the past three Sundays. I'm like, I don't. So I'm glad to be here wearing different clothes. So we'll start off there. Well, hey, uh, I want to invite you uh, to imagine with me that you're, that you're walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, okay? And you're walking down Pennsylvania Avenue with your high school history teacher. Don't go too far into detail. That might really freak you out. Um, but I want you to also imagine you're from a small town. And so you, you start to see the Washington Memorial. You see Capitol Hill, you see the White House, and sure, you've seen them on TV, maybe in some pictures online, but in person, just the this, this sheer size and scope blows you away. And you start to think about all the history that's happened there, all the Americans who've walked through that have admired these monstrous structures, and, and then let's say you start to have some small talk with your history teacher from high school, which is awkward whenever you're in high school, and, and I, I don't think I'm just projecting there. I know I was awkward in high school, but it, imagine just trying having awkward conversation. Maybe it's as awkward as this moment right now. <laughs> and you say, hey, hey, you know, aren't these amazing? And then he looks at you, looks back around at all the buildings, and says, everything you see, every building, every structure, will be completely obliterated. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. You'll see. Wait, what? <laughs> like what's going through your mind at that moment? What kind of questions, fears? Maybe the insecurity about the mental stability of your history teacher at that one exact moment. But this, that whole scenario is fairly proximate to what it felt like when Jesus began to tell the disciples 
that the temple, this monstrous symbol of the history of the Jewish people, this monstrous symbol of the Jewish faith and of the nation of Israel was going to be completely obliterated. And so, for the disciples, when they hear Jesus' words and they know the promises that God has given the nation of Israel all the way back to Abraham, that he was going to make a great nation and bless all the nations through this nation, when they hear this about the temple, they can only think about one thing. The world must be coming to an end. And so then, they say this to Jesus there in verse 3, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? In other words, how can we tell that's about to happen? And over the next couple chapters here in Matthew, Jesus begins to detail out what the end of it all is going to be like and what that means for us today. And it's going to take us a couple weeks to walk through that. Now, I know for some of you, your eyebrows just went up. Like your heart is beating to the song, it's the end of the world as we know it. Because you love this stuff. You've been waiting for this moment. And then others of you, your eyes are rolling and you're thinking, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> because if you've been around the Christian faith for any extended period of time, you know the debates that are waged over what exactly Jesus is communicating here. Well, I want you to know this morning amidst all that, What's absolutely fascinating about what Jesus highlights here, out of all that Jesus could have chosen to say, either you know, etching a timeline in the sand or pointing to specific names of leaders within history, it seems like Jesus has a slightly different goal altogether. Today we find Jesus in the final days of his life before he goes to the cross, and he begins to talk about the final days of the world and, and Jesus' main concern when he talks about the end, when he's centering and focusing on the very purpose about what he's about to communicate, the main goal when he's communicating the end of the world and his concern is our end, about whether you and I will make it through to the end, whether we will trust him all the way to the end or not. And, and I'm convinced that if we don't hear what Jesus has to say here this morning, chances are really good we won't make it. So, Let's take a look at this together. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. If you are using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 829. Well, right after uh, the disciples make this statement asking Jesus to give them some insight into to what will be when this all happens, the first thing off of Jesus' lips, check this here in verse 4, is this, "...see that no one leads you astray." For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Then down in verse 11, he repeats himself and he says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Then he says it again in verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, which is another word for Christians. So what's Jesus concerned about when it comes to the end? Again and again and again, Jesus' main warning is this. If you don't, if you don't get this, you're going to miss everything about what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying don't settle for anyone less than the real Jesus. Don't settle for anyone less 
than the real Jesus. He, he's adamant that there are going to be people who come after he has resurrected, after he has ascended to heaven, who will make promises. They're going to offer false hope. They're going to come in his name. They're going to share ideas. They're going to set up communities. They're going to plan agendas that will lead God's people away from Jesus and his redemptive mission. But I don't know you, about you, but when I was reading this passage, I, I started asking the question, why? Like, what, what will be so earth-shattering that there's a danger the real Jesus will look second-rate to his followers? What is it about the real Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, the one that Matthew walked and talked with in the first century, the historical Jesus who healed and fed thousands, who when he taught stirred the hearts of the nation? What is it that's going to happen such that Jesus' followers will be in danger of actually being deceived by these imposters, these false Christs, these false messiahs? Well, in so much of life, expectations are everything, aren't they? Um, and sometimes what we expect doesn't really line up with what we experience. You know, like that time I thought about shaving my head. I expected to look like Vin Diesel, but it didn't really work out that way. Or like every time you think about building a snowman, you have like this picturesque idea of what you're going to make, but at the end of the day, it looks like something my three-year-old made, and you're like, man, why can't I ever get a snowman? Right. You've got all these expectations but they don't always line up with reality. So when we come to the title Messiah, there was all these expectations about who he was and, and who he was to be and, and what he was to bring about. And you see, for the Jewish people thought about the Messiah, they thought about a political leader who would come and bring liberation from Rome and all of her oppressors. The Messiah was to bring military might, the military might of God, and bring it to God's people and he was to break the yoke of Rome and, and establish the Davidic kingdom in a way that it would never be broken again. He would make Israel a great and powerful nation again. He was to be the Lion of Judah coming with all the justice and righteousness of God and he would usher in this unprecedented peace. This is what Israel expected. This is what they hoped for. This is what they prayed for. Raw power and might. A vindication before all the world. And it's not that they were uninformed. You see this actually littered across the Old Testament scriptures. It was just ill-timed. Because that's not how Jesus, the Messiah, came first. You see, Jesus, when he first came, he didn't come with military domination. But Jesus would die for his enemies. Instead of breaking rokes, or rokes, Rome's yoke, he would die on a Roman cross. He was the suffering servant that the prophets spoke to time and again. Behold, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world so that when God's justice did come, it wouldn't land on everyone. And the very fact that we could be covered in the blood of Christ and actually have a way of escape, that God could be both just and the justifier. And the prophets, they pointed to this years and years before. But to so many, when they saw Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ in Greek, Christos, Mashiach in Hebrew. And still many today, when, when they look at the real Jesus, the real Jesus looked like a suffering failure, not a successful liberator. And this, the cross, right, became what the Apostle Paul calls in 1 Corinthians when he's writing to the church in Corinth, was the scandal of the gospel. 
It was the scandal because it seemed absurd that God would let his anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, die such a horrific death. I mean, what are the national hopes of Israel? What are the promises? What of peace? And so when you get to Jesus here in our passage, he goes to highlight then the destruction of the temple. Why? Because he knows that some will use this as a platform for their own false messiahship. Later in verse 15, Jesus tells us, tells his disciples to be ready for the abomination of desolation, which doesn't that just sound intense? If you were a WWF wrestler, like the abomination of desolation gets Hulk Hogan in the scorpion deathlock, right? That just sounds good. But here's what's actually going on. Um, the prophet Daniel, hundreds of years earlier, he made a prophecy about a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? He was a Greek ruler from about 175 to 164 B.C., and he hated the Jewish people. I mean, hated the Jewish people. And the Jewish people hated him, and with good reason, because he forced every Jewish person to have to worship Zeus, okay? To, to a, false, a false god. And if you didn't worship Zeus, you were under the penalty potentially of losing your life. Until one day, to spite the Jewish people, Antiochus Epiphanes, he goes to the temple. And he goes to the most holy of holies, the inner chamber. Remember, the temple is at the center of the Israelites' national identity and religious identity. He goes into the very center, the very place where, where God was said to dwell. And he goes to the altar, the most holy place, and he sacrifices a pig, the most unclean animal in the Jewish perspective. And he does so in worship to Zeus. Now, it's hard to express the sense of defilement and rage that every Israelite person would have felt in that moment. And Jesus is letting them know another moment is coming that's way worse. And it's right around the corner. This new abomination of desolation that will first come will be the Roman army come to desecrate the temple in 70 AD. They'll tear it apart brick by brick and they'll claim victory as they march on the rubble with the statues of their gods. And then amidst the rubble, the opportunists will arise and say Jesus was a false Messiah all along. And they'll promise liberation, escape, peace, hope, but to no avail. And Jesus... He's telling his disciples beforehand because, listen, this is going to be a major temptation. And Jesus' prophecy rungs true here. And every century since, there have been those who claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. I mean, if you just Google it, the list is pretty amazing. How many people? And these aren't people who are just in mental institutions, okay? These are people who have actually garnered quite a following at different points in history, who've led great bloodshed and battles and wars. Some of the names you're not going to recognize, um, and some of the pictures will make you laugh. But while the false messiahs, they don't serve Kool-Aid or call people to make these gene rompers anymore, you know. Um, <clears throat> yes, you'll find pictures of that. The messaging is still the same. It shows up and political platforms from both sides of the aisle who stir fear and promise great comfort and peace if we just give power. Proclaiming themselves to be these pseudo-messiahs. 
We can do the same when we place our hope in technology that continues to advance and offer almost in one sense an everlasting life or bank all of our connection one side of the screen. Feeling that we can feel belonged or we can belong and so feel fulfilled by all the promises that technology can bring. And time again, these false messiahs, they show up in a myriad of ways in our culture that they maybe haven't in times past, but in other ways are just the same. And so we ask ourselves, who is it who's offering this false comfort, this false hope? Beware, because if you're not careful, they'll, they'll, they'll take your heart, they'll take your time, and they'll crush your soul. And then we come to Jesus' stump speech, right? This is the alternative. You get to verses 6 through 10. He's the Messiah. Remember, he's the Son of God. He's the Christ, the Anointed One. And listen to what he says. For now, there's still going to be wars. There's still going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famine across the world. And they're like birth pains. We'll get to that in a minute. But also because you follow me, every nation's going to hate you. Not some nations, every nation. And you're going to experience more suffering for the sole reason that you bear the name of Christ. And some people are going to die for me. And then that's just going to be too much for some people. Because that's not what they bargained for with Jesus. And they're going to fall away, Jesus says. And then some people are going to hate each other. And they're going to betray one another. This is guaranteed. And we've seen this throughout the history of the church. And then I paused again and I thought, okay, why is Jesus telling us all this? I mean, I have a lot of curiosities about the future. I've got a lot of questions about what will be. So out of all the things that Jesus is saying, why does he give us information about this? Why is Jesus letting us know and saying, hey, this is really important for you to know. This is really important for the church throughout history to understand. Well, alongside of this, Jesus is concerned that, we're, that we aren't deceived if you go back to verse 6, when Jesus is beginning his list, he says, I also, I also don't want you to, to be alarmed. See that you're not alarmed, okay? I don't want you to be taken off guard by war. I don't want you to be taken off guard by tribulation. I don't want you to be taken off guard by persecution. I don't want you to be taken off guard by pain. And here's why I think he says all this concurrently with his warnings about deception. Please hear me. This is really important. We are never more susceptible to deception than when we're surprised by suffering. We are never more susceptible to deception, to soothsayers, to people who offer false hope, than when we're surprised by suffering, when it takes us off guard. I mean, there are a few things that will rock your faith more than if you're expecting deliverance and instead continue to experience pain. If you're expecting escape, but actually remain in the struggle for the long haul. Time will wear you down if you're expecting a short return. If you expect Jesus is going to make things easier and more comfortable, if you expect Jesus' main goal is to make you happy and secure as quick as possible, if you expect Jesus has come to bring wealth and health to you here and now, then you won't have categories for when pain strikes that he promises will happen, when heartache hits, when people not only suffer for Jesus but lose their life for Jesus, when he says and promises this will happen, when you hear of war or you begin to feel the pains of age, when your alignment with the real Jesus costs you influence or maybe relationships because now people have betrayed the faith and begin to hate the faith. 
Listen, if you aren't expecting pain and suffering and following Jesus, you will have a crisis of faith. It will happen. Because wrong expectations of Jesus will make you doubt the real Jesus every time. There's going to be a moment, if you've got wrong expectations here, that suffering somehow is not a crucial component of what it means to follow Jesus, there's going to be that moment in the back of your mind where you ask, what if Jesus isn't really God? Because your expectations aren't matching up with your experience. What What if his teaching really is outdated? What if none of this matters? What if God isn't in control? And when we misunderstand Jesus, that his stump speech has always been, pick up your cross and follow me. That he's always promised persecution and pain in this life. That fulfillment and comfort, which are good things, are on the far side of the Christian life and far less often on the near side. Then what we'll experience those what-ifs. We'll begin to second-guess Jesus. And from your, your perspective, Jesus will always take too long. He won't care enough about justice. He won't care enough about the poor. And those imposters will always appear more alluring. You see, we need to understand that not only is the real Jesus looked at as a suffering failure by so many, not a successful liberator, but also, don't miss this, the real Jesus leads us to endure suffering, not escape it. And it's not like Jesus doesn't offer comfort, okay? We see this time and again. After all the hardship that awaits Jesus' followers, what's the word of comfort that Jesus gives? What is the key to making it to the end? Look again at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This language of endurance presents a picture of holding one's ground in the face of opposition. It's expecting, in one sense, the worst, walking in with your eyes wide open and staying. And you know what? This has been the hallmark of the church ever since she's been around. We could look at story after story across the globe now where actually Christian persecution has reached its greatest height this year than it has in any year past. We could look at the minority church in the United States who's continued to be faithful to the calling of the gospel and of a faithful presence and a prophetic voice in the midst of our community. But one example I want to highlight is in the mid-third century. This, this terrible plague had devastated the Roman Empire and St. Cyprian, he was an African Christian leader at that time, estimated that 5,000 people died a day in Rome from this plague. It was so horrendous, people thought that the end of the world was coming. The emperor of the time, Decius, is said to have blamed Christians for the whole thing. But his accusation, it was unfounded because of two important facts. First, Christians died alongside of everybody else. And then secondly, when everyone else in Rome fled from fear of suffering and death, the Christians stayed. They didn't just endure suffering, they ran into it. And they died alongside of their neighbors who weren't Christians to care for them, to be there with them, to endure suffering because they saw that part and parcel to what it meant to follow Jesus. And you could see story after story of Christians who suffered for the proclamation of the gospel of the real Jesus and suffered because they followed the real Jesus of the gospel. 
Not because suffering is good. Nowhere do we see that suffering is like an, an eternal good. But because at the center of our faith is the one who suffered and died for us that we might live. So how can we not do the same for the other? How can we not also follow our Lord and Savior and what he's presented before us? You see, many people have asked why the church has survived since Jesus. And there are a lot of theories, but I think it's because of moments like these. Moments of intense suffering where the church stayed and her arms were wide open. The real Jesus leads his followers to endure suffering, not escape it. To enter the suffering with those no one wants, that society disregards, vulnerable people like the immigrant and the foreigner, the sick, the widow, the orphan, the other, rather than recoil in fear and pursue comfort and to distance ourselves in ease. It's a coming near. It's a solidarity. It's a pursuit of suffering as our Lord and Savior did for us while we were yet sinners. When we were enemies, that's when Christ died for us. But still, why? This question lingers in the back of my mind. Why would anyone suffer for the real Jesus in the first place? Why trust a Messiah who hasn't brought about world peace? Why trust a Messiah and risk everything, discard comfort, and endure suffering for his name's sake? And here's why. Please hear me. This is at the very center of the Christian faith. This is absolutely crucial to our calling. If we miss this, none of this makes sense. Only the real Jesus will bring your suffering to an end. Why I have confidence in Jesus over against every other self-proclaimed Messiah or political platform, why I heed the calling to endure suffering rather than run from it, is because while a lot of people can make a lot of promises about a lot of things, only Jesus has defeated death. The resurrection is at the very core and the fuel of the Christian church. None of the other imposters, none of the other religions out there can claim this. No other person has claimed to be the Christ, predicted his own death, and then three days later was alive again. No one other than the real Jesus said, hey, hey, guys, guys, and, and I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer for you, but I don't want you to be alarmed because that's not the end. And then three days later, I'm going to come back and then I'm going to go to be with my father, but I'm going to send the spirit to be with you, but don't worry because I'll be back again. And the disciples, listen, they don't get it. Who can blame them? I mean, what sort of fabric of reality would you have said, oh, that makes sense? Um, when Jesus was being led to the cross, what happens to those disciples? They all scatter for fear of suffering for fear of doubt that Jesus is who he said he was. But something happens three days later. All those men and women who'd scattered, save maybe Jesus' mother and a few others at the foot of the cross, they said they saw him. And then others started saying they'd seen him. And that they touched him. And that they'd eaten with him. And that they'd walked and talked with him. And then they saw him, they said they saw him ascend into heaven. And that he sent the spirit and that he's going to come again. And all of this, it changed them. When you look at the, the history of the early church in the book of Acts and you read St. Paul's letters, 
Those who were so terrified of suffering that ran away now were giving their lives, were suffering unexplainable deaths to proclaim the good news of the resurrection of Jesus and his sufficient death on the cross. And on their dying breath, you know what they were saying? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And until he comes, in the time between his ascension until he comes again, you know what Jesus says in verse 8? All these sufferings that we experience because of following Jesus or all the pain we experience because this world is broken and is still in the midst of a great transition, this, this, this pain that's beyond even what we see, this war that's being waged beyond sight, he says all these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Now, when Allie was pregnant with our first child, I remember like every single twinge of pain, every ounce of discomfort. The question we had was, hey, hey, is that, is that normal? <laughs> we were glued to that book. Maybe some of you have heard it, what to expect when you're expecting, right? And it's full of a lot of fun things like, hey, your child's the size of a cheeseburger. Mmm, I'm hungry. Um, and it would talk you through side, gramp, side cramps and indigestion and then how Allie felt. It was really good. But no matter how much reading you do, no matter how much reading you do, nothing can prepare you for the pain of childbirth. So I'm told. <laughs> but I want you to imagine in Jesus' day, no epidural, no gloves, just you and a few of your friends and a midwife hanging out in the living room, right? And the pain is excruciating and it's prolonged and it gets worse and worse and worse until the child is born. But here's what's different about birth pains from just about any other pain. Like if you run a marathon or you get a knee replacement or you graduate college, people will often ask, you know, or <laughs> yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you know, people will ask, hey, was it worth it? You know, was all that worth it? Never does someone come up to a mom who's holding her newborn and say, hey, was that worth it? It's ridiculous, right? Because all that pain in that moment, the moment you get to hold that newborn child for the first time, that joy is unspeakable. Of course it's worth it. And that's what Jesus is saying. The end of the world will be like that for everyone who follows Jesus to the end. Suffering is normal now. It's excruciating at times now. And we weep with those who weep, but we do not weep as those who have no hope. If the world hated Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised and we should not avoid the reality of us also experiencing persecution. And since the world isn't healed yet, we shouldn't be surprised at pain, but he'll bring it to an end one day and it'll be glorious. You see, he's not going to come back in a secret room hidden in the back area that we're going to find out, you know, by looking on... Uh, Google or anything like that. Oh, that's where he is. And you know, suddenly everybody's following him on, on Instagram. Like that's not the way it's going to work. He's not going to be out in the wilderness slowly garnering a following once again. We see in Matthew 24, verse 27, that he's going to come. And when he comes, it's going to be like lightning. And everybody from the east and the west is going to know that the Son of Man has come. And those who are Jesus's are going to celebrate. And those who are not Jesus's will tremble with fear because he will not come back as a gentle dove and a slaughtered lamb once again. He will come back as that roaring lion. And we see in verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect 
the Christians once again from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And this day, oh, where the most of the world looks at Jesus and sees him as a suffering failure, will finally see him as the successful liberator that he is. And all those who have followed Jesus and followed him straight into enduring suffering will know the joy of their suffering come to an end. And we'll be able to look back on it all and say it was worth it. Like a, new, like a mother with her newborn child. And it's because of that hope, anchored in the resurrection of Jesus, that we can be people of courage instead of fear. That we can stand alongside of the vulnerable and step into the gap and suffer. Because even now we know death is not the end. And so we can proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus this world over. We can be people not given to lawlessness where our love has grown cold, as Jesus says many will be, but instead we can be empowered by God's love for love and love always demands that we suffer for the ones we love. And isn't this what the world needs now more than ever? People who are looking for Christ seeking to follow him while they wait. Not more fear, not more chaos, not more escape. The world needs the real Jesus and those who stick with the real Jesus and so endure the suffering that comes alongside of that. Don't settle for anything less. May we hear those words this morning. Let's pray. Dear God, may we hear these warnings when you're telling us to be on the lookout. The subtlety of false Christs, of false messiahs, of false folks who say that they are, they've been anointed uniquely by God to lead to liberation or an empty hope and so somehow seek to supplant the real Jesus. God, may you give us eyes to see. May we have a greater fervor for the real Jesus. May we not be afraid of suffering, but have courage. May we not be alarmed by suffering, but expect it. And simultaneously stand with great hope, expecting your return. Because if you can defeat the grave, and you've loved us enough to die for us, why wouldn't you come back? God, we love you. Help us to love you in our very life we live today. In Jesus' name.